Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Continuing our series of sermons through Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we come to chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and we will read through verse 26. This is God's Word. While he was in one of the cities, Jesus that is, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. But he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Just a couple of months after Suzanne and I got married, we got our first pet, the first of many. This is a white, long haired cat named Suni. Just so you know that that's part of the training process. You start by buying a plant and see if you can keep it alive. And then, then you buy a pet and see if you can keep it alive. And then, if you get to that point, you can think about having children. One thing I always remember about that first cat that we had was how my perception of her changed whenever she would go outside in the winter. When Suni was inside the house, she looked perfectly white. She was the whitest thing in the house. But when she went outside in the snow, she was an entirely different color to my eyes. Suddenly, she looked dirty. She looked dingy. She looked kind of yellowish or tannish. She didn't really look white anymore compared to the snow. Whiteness, it's a lesson for all of us. Whiteness is a relative term, relative to what you're comparing it to. 
And God's word often uses that contrast between light or whiteness and darkness to try to communicate to us the great gulf, the great separation between the perfect holiness of our God and the darkness of, who, of us and our sin. Sin isn't just what we do. We'd like to think of it that way, that we could just kind of take off sin like a coat. But sin isn't just what we do, sin is who we are. We are deeply, to the very core of our being, stained, corrupted, dirty, morally, spiritually, because of our sin. Like Sunni the cat, we can look kind of white if we get ourselves in the right context. Compare ourselves to the sinners that we know, the people who are quote-unquote worse than we are. And we can look at those people and look down on them judgmentally and pat ourselves on the back for being whiter than they are. But when you come into the presence of a holy God, you look at yourself and you realize how black and dark the sin in your heart really is. When we compare ourselves to his perfect whiteness, his perfect light, his perfect holiness, we have the same, when we do that by faith, when we see the holiness of God, we have the same response that Isaiah had when he had a vision of the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, where he falls on his face before him and says, woe is me, I am undone. So many words in scripture are used to illustrate what salvation is. But one of the most common ones, and a very important one, especially in the Old Covenant, is the word cleansing. Salvation is the cleansing of a soul. In Psalm 51 that we read earlier, you heard these words. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. This was a cry from the heart of King David as he was dealing with the blackness of sin of adultery and sin of murder. He's crying out to God. Give me a clean heart. Make me clean. Wash me, Lord. And God himself speaks in those terms in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Never forget one of the very first Christian songs that I heard as a new believer, as a teenager, was a very simple ditty called, Clean Before My Lord. And I still, to this day, find myself humming and singing those words. They were so meaningful to me as someone who had just come out of all the darkness and shame and guilt of my pre-Christian days. And here's how the words go. It says, clean before my Lord I stand, and in me not one blemish does he see. When I placed all my burdens on him, he washed them all from me. I used to sing that over and over. The joy of a new believer to stand before this holy God and to understand that you are clean, no longer dirty, no longer black, no longer corrupted in his sight, clean, forgiven. I'm sure there are many here this morning that either justifiably or unjustifiably feel dirty. And I want to speak to both of those kinds of people this morning. Are you feeling morally, spiritually, dirty, filthy, stained? 
ashamed of yourself as you stand before God. This passage speaks to how you can be free of that. It points us to the one who can cleanse us. How does he do that? Let's look at verse 12. Jesus is still traveling around Galilee. He's been there through this part of his ministry. It's where he began in his public ministry. And he approaches a city. And as he comes to the outskirts of the city, it says, A man full of leprosy came up to him and fell down at his feet. Now, that's, remember, this is Luke the doctor. And what he's saying by saying that he was full of leprosy means that it was a very advanced case of a very awful disease. What was called leprosy in the first century, we'd think, is something different than what's called leprosy today. Matter of fact, it's called Hansen's disease today. And they think that back in biblical times, it was either a different disease or it was, it was just a, a different variation of the disease, but much worse in many ways than what they call leprosy today. The way it began is you'd start to feel pain in different parts of your body, and that pain would produce numbness in that part of your body. And that numbness would then progress to the, the skin around it becoming thick and pale and scaly. The word leprosy actually comes from the word for scales because of the way the skin felt. And then these sores and ulcers would develop in that diseased skin. And that diseased skin, would, would, as it increased, it would start to bunch up around the head often as well as other places on the body. And then, as it progressed into its final stages, actually even fingers and toes would, would, would come off as the disease started to take over. And on top of all that, as the body became more diseased, it put off a very unpleasant stench. So when a person encountered a person with advanced leprosy like this man, everything about the person was offensive. The way he looked, certainly, the way he felt, the way he smelled. The leper's appearance was disfigured and it was repulsive. According to Old Testament law, lepers were considered unclean. And unclean wasn't really particularly referring to hygiene. It was, uh, it was uh, referring to their status in relation to the people of Israel. They were outside of the social and religious life of the people of Israel. They were permanently quarantined because of this ugly disease. And if a healthy person were to come close to them, they were required by the law to cover their mouth and shout, unclean, unclean, to warn the person away. Some have said that the lepers in that day were the walking dead. One commentator called them a walking parable of sin, a picture of sin's effect in a person's life. Now, sometimes leprosy, we know from the scriptures, that sometimes leprosy was a direct punishment for sin. Remember Miriam, Aaron and Moses' sister, was punished with leprosy. Or Gehazi, the servant of the prophet Elisha, was punished with leprosy. King Uzziah was punished for going in and taking on priestly duties in the temple as a king and a non-priest. He was punished with leprosy. So sometimes we know that God does punish sin or discipline us with sin, with suffering because of a particular sin. But as the Gospels teach us clearly, not all sin 
Not all suffering is connected to a particular sin. Sometimes suffering is just the result of living in a broken, fallen world. Sometimes suffering is a test to strengthen faith, not a discipline for a particular sin. We don't know in this case if this man's leprosy was one or the other. All we know is this man comes and he is in this advanced state of leprosy and he falls down before Jesus. And you can imagine all the people around Jesus would be horrified. You don't get that close to a leper. And they're looking to Jesus to see how he's going to respond. And this is where he reveals that he has both the power and the will to make us clean. The leper makes a bold statement of faith. He says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. In other words, Lord, you have the power to heal me. He's not doubting the power of Jesus to heal. He had seen that. He had heard about it. But what he's unsure about is the willingness of Jesus to heal him. And what that reflects is his own sense of unworthiness. He's begging for mercy. Mercy is favor from God that is undeserved. And that's exactly what this leper is asking for. He knows that Jesus can heal him, but he's not coming to him demanding the healing. He's not claiming a right to be healed. He has no right to be healed. He is unworthy as a sinner, but he's pleading for mercy. That's how any sinner must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come recognizing his power to clean you, to forgive you, to heal you, but also recognizing that you are unworthy. And that if he is going to clean you and heal you and forgive you, it's going to be an act of grace. That it's going to be reflect his mercy to an unworthy sinner. That is how you approach Jesus. And so Jesus responds the way he always does when somebody comes acknowledging their unworthiness and asking for him to use his power to clean and to heal. And so... He reaches out, first of all, and touches him. He touches the leper. In all of his hideous, ugly, smelly state, he touches him with his hand. Probably, without a doubt, the first time he had been touched by a non-leper in many, many years. And Jesus says two simple but powerful words. It's two words in the original language. It's four in English. I will be clean. And the man was immediately healed. Now think about that. He's grotesquely ugly, smelly. And Jesus touches him and says, be clean. And he's immediately in perfect health. Perfectly clean skin. All the deformities gone. All the appendages reattached. he's, he's, He's healed completely in a moment. As one commentator said, it's the first time in history that clean has touched dirty and made it clean instead of clean touching dirty and being made dirty, (laughs) which is kind of an interesting observation. Then Jesus tells the leper he has to go and show himself to the priest, and that's what the Old Testament law required. 
has to go and show himself to the priest at the temple so that he can be inspected. That's, there's a whole process in the Old Testament about how a leper who had been healed could be inspected by the priest, be declared to be healed, but then there was a week-long, actually an eight-day-long process by which that leper would then be cleansed ceremonially and prepared and then sent back into the community and restored to his full and normal life and all the relationships and all the access to the temple and worship that he was used to. It began with the leper bringing two birds. One of those birds would be killed and the blood would be drained from it and then the other bird would be dipped in the blood of the the bird that was killed and then released And then the blood from the dead bird was sprinkled upon the leper seven times. And that's how the process was initiated. And then later in the week, there would be other rituals and ultimately there would be other blood sacrifices that had to be made. And so in this cleansing, you get the clear connection between the shedding of blood and the cleansing and the healing and forgiveness. The importance of blood being shed. As Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, as I think about the deterioration of this man under leprosy and the sudden healing of him, I was reminded of the story I read long ago about the the picture of Dorian Gray. I'm sure many of you have read that story. You were required required to read it somewhere along your education. And in that story, there's this, this amazingly beautiful, handsome young man named Dorian Gray. And a, a great painter points, uh, paints a portrait of him that reveals all of his beauty and all of his glory. And so he, he is enamored with the painting, but he essentially sells his soul such that He can live his life however he wants to, but any aging or any effect of his lifestyle would be attributed to, would be uh, placed on the paint, the, the, the figure in the painting, while he would remain young and handsome and beautiful the rest of his life. That was the deal that he made. And so as he then goes out and lives a totally hedonistic life, pursues every lust of the flesh that that interests him, uh, uses people, abuses people, ends up murdering people, just totally gives in to depravity and decadence. And as he's living that lifestyle, he would go and look at the painting, and the painting would become more and more grotesque and ugly. It became a picture of what his true soul looked like as opposed to what the world saw of his beauty. At the end, he comes, even though that painting, that portrait was hidden so that no one else could see it, he knew what it looked like. And he grew to hate it so much that he tried to destroy it. And when he tried to destroy it, he ends up killing himself. Now, the writer who wrote that story was not a Christian. But it certainly is a picture of what the scriptures teach us about the destructive nature of sin, how it corrupts and destroys and makes us ugly. And yet we try to put on this beautiful face before the world. We go work overtime to look up appealing to the world. And yet we know that there's this sinful soul that's behind this thin exterior. And how we deal with that determines how your life is going to go. Are you going to deal with the ugliness of your soul or are you going to just continue to hide it behind this pretty exterior? That's what Jesus is doing here. This this leper was a picture 
of what sin does to a human being. And Jesus showed him the way to be made clean. All he had to do was fall on his face before Jesus, acknowledge his unworthiness, and appeal to Christ to have mercy upon him to make him clean. It's that simple. For those who see the ugliness of their sin and they come to Jesus in faith, he says, I will be clean. There is no more any hidden record of your sin. There's no portrait that portrays ugliness hiding in your closet. As the, the psalmist says, your sins are put as far away as east is from west. You are clean in the sight of a holy God when Christ makes you clean. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Jesus has the will and the power to clean. But he goes on in the next incident to show that his priority is to make us clean. Verse 17 Jesus is teaching in a house. And you'll recognize this story if you've been with us the last few weeks because Pastor Richard. Uh, preached on this just a month ago from Mark's account. So this is Luke's account of the same story. Jesus is teaching in a house and his popularity has grown. The house is crammed full. There's no room for anyone else to enter into the house. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes are there in the house as well. It says, interestingly, they'd come from all over Galilee and all over Judea to come and hear Jesus. They, I think, are doing their job in a sense because that's what the religious leaders were meant to do in Israel. They were to, to protect sound doctrine. And here's this popular preacher out in the backwoods, the back country of uh, Galilee, and he's gathering all these crowds. He's doing all these miracles. We need to find out what this guy's teaching and making sure that he is, he is uh, towing the line with Pharisaical doctrine and interpretation and tradition. And so they show up at the house, and so the house is filled while these men sit probably in the front row, just waiting with bated breath for Jesus to say or do something they considered heretical. At some point, some men, it says here in Mark's gospel, we know it was four men. Four men come to the house carrying on a mat or a bed of some sort. They are carrying a paralyzed man. And they get to the house and realize there's no way that they're getting inside because of the crowd. And so they know about a typical Judean house, has a stairway to the top, to the roof, a flat roof that was used like a, kind of like an outdoor room in most houses. Very, it was used all the time. That's why they always had stairs to their flat roofs. Took the stairs, carried the man up to the flat roof, took away a couple of tiles, and then they lowered the man down on four ropes with his bed right in front of Jesus as he sat there teaching. You can imagine how the people must have been shocked, but probably, probably a little perturbed as well. I mean, it's kind of like when the guy cuts in front of you in the line at Wegmans. Hey, wait, we were here first. Well, you know, you have no right to barge into this. And then, of course, you've got these Pharisees and scribes waiting for him to do something that would betray him as a heretic. So how would Jesus respond? It says that Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. How did he see their faith? Well, first of all, Jesus is God. We've talked about this before. He had this mysterious union of his divine nature and his human nature, fully, fully God, fully man, one person. Somehow his divine nature would interact with his human nature in ways that were mysterious and beyond our understanding, but he was able to know what people thought. He was able to see hearts. 
And he saw that these men exercised genuine faith. They were driven to do this for their friend, and the paralyzed man himself was there because he believed in Jesus to some point. Their faith was genuine. But he also saw their faith in what they were doing. What incredible persistence. Like the widow who kept banging on the door of the judge, you know, incredible persistence showing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew he was powerful to heal, to clean, to save, and they were hoping that he was willing. Like the leper, these five men, the four men, friends and the paralyzed man, these five men approached Jesus with faith in him and an acknowledgement of their unworthiness and an appeal for mercy. That's how you approach Jesus for cleansing. Now, at that point, I'm sure many, most people in the room probably expected Jesus to do a miracle, to do a miraculous healing. But no one expected him to say what he said next. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Think about the impact on that man. He came in asking for a dollar, and Jesus gave him a billion dollars. Your sins are forgiven. This is justification by faith alone. He believed in Jesus, and he came to Jesus asking for mercy. And in that moment, he was made clean. His sins were forgiven. Justification by faith alone. Or as the apostles would later preach, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus' priority is to heal and clean the soul. His priority, that's why he came the first time. He will come again to heal our bodies and to heal this creation and to make all things the way they were intended to be from the beginning of creation. But he came the first time to heal souls, to make souls clean. And that's what he did for this leper. For a moment, he puts the pause on his signs and wonders, his miraculous healings, and he points people to what, they were, what the signs were pointing to. What were the signs all about? The reason for his coming, to bring forgiveness of sins and to make sinners clean. Something the church has to remember, that the priority is the preaching of the gospel that can make men's souls clean. That's the priority. Our deeper needs are not physical. They're not material. They're not financial. They're not relational. They are spiritual. They are rooted in the fact that we are slaves to sin and full of shame and desperately needing forgiveness. And yes, we need to have compassion on the bodies of men as well. Concern for their physical needs. But the priority is to bring healing and cleansing of the soul through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this begs the question then, how can Jesus make the claim to forgive sins? He shows us that he has that authority in what happens next. The scribes and the Pharisees can't believe what they've just heard. They've got their evidence. They were looking for evidence. They've got it. They're indignant. I'm sure anybody in the room could have read their body language. They were angry. They were, they were about ready to shout. But Jesus, being God, could read their thoughts as well and see their hearts as well. And what an ugly sight that must have been. 
What he hears in their thoughts is them saying, blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, first of all, you have to acknowledge that their theology was impeccable. It is true that only God can forgive sins. As King David said in that great Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Only God can forgive sins because only God is the one truly offended by our sin, for he is the lawgiver, and it is his holiness that we offend, and only God can forgive it. They were right about forgiveness having to come only from God. They were wrong about who Jesus was. And so Jesus sets them up and puts them on the horns of a dilemma, as he would so often do. He asks them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Was it easier for me to declare that this man's sins were forgiven by faith, or would it be easier for me to tell him to get up, take up his bed, and walk and go home? Which is easier? Well, the most obvious answer to that question would be, it would be easier just to say his sins are forgiven. That way, if he stays paralyzed and you just say, oh, his sins are forgiven, how would you know? Have to wait till judgment day to find out, I guess. You know, how would you know that his sins were really forgiven? So it's easier to say that because the proof is in the pudding in terms of telling somebody to rise and walk. If they get up and walk away, then he's proven to be right. But in a deeper sense, what you have to realize what it means for Jesus to claim to have the authority to forgive sins, it means that he is God. And that God being God... His wrath and his justice must be satisfied in order for sins to be pardoned. God cannot just overlook sin. God cannot just look at somebody and say, yeah, you know, you've sinned a lot, but I'm just going to give you a break today. I'm just going to let you go. I feel kind today. Don't worry about it. God never deals with sin that way. Sin must be punished. Blood must be shed. The debt must be paid. And so for Jesus to proclaim this paralyzed man to be forgiven and clean, Jesus had to go to the cross. Jesus had to pay for the just penalty that this man's sins deserved. He had to die in his place and bear the wrath of God in his place and pay the debt in full. It's not easy for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. It's as hard as dying on the cross and enduring the pains of hell in his place. That's how hard it was. And if he is God, and he's done the hardest thing, which is to bear the wrath and have God his Father turn his back on him and reject him because he's bearing our sins, and he's the God who created the universe, the God who sustains the world, universe by the power of his word alone, then how hard is it for him to repair a paralyzed leg or to repair a nervous system? That's easy. The hard thing was to go to the cross so that this man could be forgiven. Before the Pharisees and scribes, I'm always kind of curious how they would have answered that question. But we don't get an answer because Jesus cuts them off and actually says to the man, rise and walk. Pick up your bed. Walk home. And immediately he gets up and walks home. You know what's interesting the Pharisees weren't impressed, I guess. They continued to call him a blasphemer. And actually, blasphemy was the charge in the Jewish courts that were used against Jesus that led to his crucifixion. You see, Jesus did the hard thing. He said, your sins are forgiven. I have made you clean. 
because I'm going to die for your sins and pay the debt in full. You see, only the gospel takes our sins seriously. You'll hear other religions and other philosophies talk about forgiveness, but only the gospel tells us how God's justice is dealt with. How God can go both be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Only the gospel tells us how sin can be fully punished and yet God have mercy upon those who commit the sins and forgive them and make them clean by grace. I want you to consider for just a moment the holiness of Jesus Christ. It was displayed for us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me read that to you from Mark chapter 9. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Whiter than white. The whitest possible white. We talked about white being relative. Well, he's the t- that, 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 what Mark is trying to say is that he reached the pinnacle of whiteness. You can't get whiter than Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then we're also reminded of that vision that the Apostle John had in the first chapter of Revelation where he saw a vision of, and of course there's some symbolic language here, but listen to the wording of the vision that John saw of the resurrected and reigning Christ in heaven beginning in verse 12 of Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold lamp and golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. That's the holiness of Christ. That's the whiteness, the cleanness of Christ. And yet, the gospel says, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who was brilliantly white and clean took our filth and grotesqueness and stench upon himself and bore God's wrath in our place on the cross and paid our debt in full. And so when he says, I will be clean, your sins are forgiven, understand the cost that he paid for that. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he put on the attire of a servant and he knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. And I love that interchange between Jesus and Peter. He's going around to all the disciples, washing their feet, and they're all a little taken aback, not knowing how to interpret this. How could the Lord wash their feet? But Peter, being the bold one, is the one who spoke up and said, Stop, Jesus, you can't do this to me. This is inappropriate. You should not be cleaning my feet. You, you should not be doing this. And Jesus says to him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter responded in typical Peter fashion, well, then wash my hands and my head too. You know, wash my whole body, if that's what it means, if it means having a share in you. And I love Jesus' kind response. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. You're clean, Peter. 
Sure, as you walk through this world, there are, you're going to commit sins. Your feet are going to get dirty. But you're going to wash your feet every day by confessing sins that I'm going to pay for at the cross. They're going to be paid for in full, past, present, and future. They're all paid for. You have to daily apply that grace to the sins you commit day in and day out. But you are clean, Peter. I would love, I always tell, every once in a while I'll tell you guys, write something on your bathroom mirror so it's the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning as your eyes are adjusting to the light. I want the first thing you see at the top of your bathroom mirror. You are clean in Christ. It'll change your life. We carry around so much false guilt and shame and because we're so worried about how the world sees us. You see, it's the opposite of Dorian Gray. We're all, he was all worried about how the world sees him, but this hidden identity he didn't want to deal with. But Christ has done away with that hidden identity, and before God, you're clean. You can't add anything to what Christ has done for you on the cross. You're absolutely clean, and you will be clean for eternity. And someday, Christ is going to return and complete your healing, and you'll be perfect in body and soul as a work of his grace. He is faithful. He will do it. So if you feel dirty this morning and this afternoon, as you stand before God, come to Jesus, the only one with the power, the will, and the authority to make you eternally clean, and he will respond. If you acknowledge your unworthiness and ask him for mercy, he will respond, I will be clean. Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for continuing to carry guilt and shame that has been taken care of at the cross. But Lord, maybe there's someone here this morning who has never come and fell on their face before Christ and acknowledged their unworthiness, has never asked him for mercy and grace and forgiveness and heard him say, you are clean, you are forgiven, I will, and I have done it. Lord, for that person, I pray that today would be the day that they find cleansing in Christ, a clean heart, a clean mind, a clean soul, and one day a clean body. Lord, thank you, Lord, that we don't have to cower in fear, but live in reverential fear of the Lord the rest of our lives because of what Christ has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.